Coming up, the award-winning Lotus Flow coating process. Why this pipe coating is making a big difference for the oil and gas industry. Plus, a breakthrough for better air quality. And machine learning, it's a tech buzz phrase, but do you know what it means? Our expert is in-house to explain. That's next on this episode of Technology Today. We live with technology, science, engineering, and the results of innovative research every day. Now, let's understand it better. You're listening to the Technology Today podcast presented by Southwest Research Institute. Hello and welcome to Technology Today. I'm Lisa Fenya. Breakthroughs and Ask Us Anything coming up. But first, SWRI Institute scientist Michael Miller is here to discuss Lotus Flow super hydrophobic coating used in offshore pipes. The technology is one of our two R&D 100 award winners for 2019. Congratulations to your team and thanks for being here, Michael. Well, thank you, Lisa. So, Michael, first question, what is Lotus Flow? How do you describe it? Well, Lotus Flow is a, uh, both a coating technology as well as a process to apply the coating, um, <clears throat> which deposits a coating on the internal surface of pipe structures. And the purpose of this coating is to mitigate uh, uh, deposits from adhering to the internal surface uh, of that pipe. And the deposits that we've targeted are things like waxes, uh, or paraffins, uh, as well as uh, asphaltines, which are tar-like substances that are very tenacious on, on just about any kind of surface. Uh, and these deposits uh, <clears throat> pre uh, present a big problem to uh, the oil and gas industry when uh, we're recovering oil from uh, deep offshore wells, in that they tend to plug uh, the pipe um, in, in these wells. So the, the coating prevents uh, the adhesion of these deposits and allows the product to flow uh, consistently and continuously. So what does better flow in the pipes mean for the industry? It means a lot because any plugs that develop uh, in a, a deep offshore well uh, potentially can cost millions of dollars a day to uh, unplug uh, and it also costs a lot of money uh, to prevent the plugs from occurring again. There's a, a number of mitigation strategies that are used in the oil and gas industry, um, which require that uh, they pump uh, millions of gallons of uh, organic fluids, uh, things like methanol, uh, down into the well to uh, mitigate these substances from uh, adhering to the surface of, of the pipe. So the coating basically takes the place of these other solvent-based mitigation strategies, um, which um, they present a big environmental impact, potential impact on the environment if you have leakage of, of uh, uh, those solvents. Take us to the offshore drilling site for a mm -hmm. moment, because we think of them as, you know, out there in the middle of the ocean, separate from our lives. But really, what's going on out there does impact our day-to-day -day lives. Can you kind of connect those dots for us? Sure. Yes. Um, any additional costs that it takes to recover product, meaning uh, oil product, uh, that will be processed uh, later, let's say, into a fuel like gasoline or diesel, 
um, any added cost to that um, eventually affects the consumer. Um, so anything that can be done to reduce the cost of oil recovery, uh, particularly in these situations where a, um, let's say, a plug in a downhole pipe uh, would stop production, is a big deal to the industry and to us as well. Yeah, for all the things we use oil and gas for. Correct. It's not just is this it's not just fuels. It's also plastics, um, and and other products that are derived from uh, petroleum products. Yeah, good to know. Because, like I said, I think that's just we don't really think about how we get the products and the fuel that we use every day. But, I mean, that's it, it's important for all of us, really. Yes, it's everything that we touch today is probably a petroleum derived product. Um, uh, we uh, try to mitigate everything that has a potential impact on the environment surrounding that industry, and this is just one of them. So let's um, talk about the name, Lotus Flow. I like that story. <laughs> how did how did Lotus Flow get its name? Well, uh, Lotus actually was uh, meant to be a code word for this um, uh, development project uh, during the R&D phase of it. Um, but uh, Lotus comes from really the lotus leaf a flower, and um, if one were to look at the surface of the uh, the flat the the flower from the lotus plant, uh, you will find uh, that microscopically it, it has a uh, a structure uh, to its surface. It has a surface topology. It also has a, a very interesting biologically derived coating on that surface. And in effect, what happens is uh, the surface of the lotus leaf is actually super hydrophobic, uh, which allows uh, water droplets to um, uh, fall very easily uh, into the center of the, of the lotus leaf. So um, while we're not applying uh, these microscopic structures to our coating, um, they are, uh, the coating is super hydrophobic. Let's talk about that term a little bit, superhydrophobic. Sure. Yes. How do you define that? So superhydrophobic is anything that um, uh, will, uh, for example, uh, cause a water droplet to beat up is the best way to visualize this. Just like if you were to wax your car, um, which some people apparently still do, uh, <laughs> the, the idea is to try to get it as... Um, phobic, meaning it, it dislikes um, the surface, uh, and the surface in this case would dislike um, uh, water. So a water droplet would beat up. And we actually make a measurement, it's a good question, because we actually make an analytical measurement of that effect, which we call the water contact angle. So the more spherical the drop is on that surface, the more hydrophobic it is. And we have, as scientists, we have defined these ranges of what that water contact angle is and how we classify it, whether it's hydrophobic or super hydrophobic. In our coatings, the contact angle is high enough. In other words, if you were to look at the water droplet, it would be very, very spherical that we call it super hydrophobic. Okay, so because of this coating that, in essence, repels liquids correct on the inside of the pipes that allows for better flow because 
Things are not just clumping up in there. Right. Now, it gets quite a bit more complicated. All right. (laughs) Because (laughs) um, in a a flowing pipe that's uh, producing an oil recovery process, that uh, you have a very complex matrix of oil product uh, as well as uh, some component of gas in that flow as well. So the interaction between, uh, let's say, the deposits that we're trying to prevent from adhering to that surface are actually in a surrounding matrix of oil as well. So that interaction becomes very complex. Um, But we have just established that uh, uh, we need to be in the superhydrophobic range in order to mitigate the adhesion of the deposits that we specifically targeted. I've seen photos of the process of making this coating, and there's a lot of, I guess, light, and it's, it's, yes. it looks very colorful. <laughs> Can you describe that process for us? Yes, the, the process is really key. Um, we use um, a plasma. It's a plasma process. It's a vacuum process. Um, we actually um, make use of the pipe that we're coating uh, as um, a vacuum chamber, okay? And uh, we evacuate the pipe, and uh, then we introduce um, uh, gas, in this case is an argon gas, uh, along with these chemical precursors. Uh, And then we stimulate uh, the pipe electrically to ignite a plasma. So some people call plasma the fourth state of matter. Uh, A plasma, as we create in this process is uh, highly excited states of both the gas that we've introduced as well as uh, the chemical precursors. They're highly excited um, and excited in the sense that their um, uh, their electrons have been pushed to uh, an excited state. And when they return to their ground state, they emit light. So <clears throat> much like your fluorescent bulbs, Uh, which work basically on the same principle as forming a plasma, they emit light. Uh, This process also emits light, and it's a beautiful cobalt blue light that is emitted um, in this process. But the idea here, the reason it's important to ignite a plasma is because we're trying to actually excite these molecules, these chemical precursors that I mentioned, uh, to a point to where they actually fragment. They kind of break apart, but they break apart in a very controlled way so that um, they also form ions, um, and those ions are then accelerated very rapidly to the inside surface of the pipe. And when they're accelerated very rapidly, they collide with the surface, and then they undergo additional reactions. It's what we call a polymerization reaction. Uh, which then forms this um, conformal coating on the uh, inside of the pipe. And is all this done prior to, in a lab somewhere, prior to installing the pipes where they need to go? Correct, yes. So uh, in order to um, do this process, we have to build a uh, facility that would uh, accommodate long lengths of pipe. Um, so uh, normally a typical length of uh, downhole pipe is about 40 feet per stick, we call them sticks. Um, so in order to have enough of a, uh, a production rate, uh, one has to build a facility which 
can handle uh, a number of coding lines um, simultaneously. Um, so we built a uh, what we call a pilot facility to demonstrate the process to do this. And during um, that uh, process, we were able to demonstrate that we can coat multiple lines where each line has two sticks, two of these 40-foot sections of pipe, which are coupled together, so 80 feet total per line. And we ignite a very homogeneous plasma along that entire length, which is or was one of the biggest challenge, technical challenges uh, uh, because it's actually quite difficult to ignite a plasma over a long distance like uh, we, we do. Um, so once we um, determined how to do that uh, and how to do that uh, consistently, then we knew we had a good process to deposit this coating. So now that technology that was, that was put in place as a pilot facility, along with the chemistry that's associated with Lotus, was transitioned uh, to a third party. Uh, uh, that third party is Shawcor, and uh, they have now built a full-scale facility to produce large quantities of coated pipe. In our case, we produced uh, about 160,000 feet of coated pipe, and, uh, and that was done uh, primarily just to uh, validate or to be able to validate the performance of the coating in a real case scenario. In other words, that pipe was installed off the uh, coast of Texas in the Gulf of Mexico in a deep, um, a very deep well, about uh, 20,000 foot in depth. Um, and that's just to be able to validate. Uh, so the, normally when we do experiments in the laboratory, we, um, you know, we may set up something which um, <clears throat> we look at, let's say, uh, uh, 10 different specimens and uh, we run some tests and perhaps we derive some statistics on the results. In this particular case, in order just to validate the performance, we have to coat about 20,000 feet of pipe, install it down hole, and validate the performance. So it's a much, much more difficult target to achieve just for validation. So it was validated, and now a, a company has is, is doing this day-to-day, -day, and so it's this technology is in use now. It's fully commercialized now. One can request or order coated pipe with Lotus Flow uh, coating, and... Um, and purchase uh, whatever quantity they uh, you, you request. So I know one of the things that you're especially proud of, and as you mentioned earlier, is the environmental uh, benefits. Right. So tell us a little bit about um, how this process is better for the environment. Well, uh, just not having to use organic solvents to um, mitigate the adhesion of these deposits uh, deep offshore um, is, um, I think, a big step in preventing uh, environmental impact uh, due to, let's say, uh, accidents, uh, leaks, uh, just the handling of organic solvents. Uh, these, these are uh, also volatile solvents. Uh, so um, that combined is, um, I think, is a pretty big deal. This is a pretty involved 
process and you're talking about plasma, sparks flying, the whole works. <laughs> How on earth was this process discovered? Who, is this something you just stumble upon <clears throat> or does this take many years of trial and error? Well, uh, the development time is about 10 years. So this was not done overnight by any means. Um, and we have to separate um, the discovery of both the, the process and the chemistry. Um, we really started looking at um, the coding chemistry initially, and that was done at a very fundamental level. We were, um, actually started uh, with doing molecular simulations to try to understand uh, why such deposits uh, uh, stick uh, uh, so much to, let's say, bare pipe, um, and then um, can th th we wanted to answer the question, well, can we develop a coating that would uh, at least uh, mitigate that process? And that was done at a very fundamental level. Uh, and then <clears throat> we started off uh, trying to demonstrate our hypothesis by coding uh, in a more conventional process chamber, coating coupon-sized specimens, literally one-inch square coupon specimens, and doing some analytical tests on that. And at some point, we said, yeah, I think we're, in the, uh, we're going towards the right direction in developing this. Um, and uh, uh, we came up with a coating chemistry that we felt uh, had a very good chance of working uh, for different types of deposits. We've talked about super hydrophobic really not being a new element for coatings, but what really is different about this particular process is the durability. That's right. If you can speak to that. <clears throat> yeah, so um, you can pick up um, any um, journal these days having to do with coating technologies or surface science, and you'll find any number of articles on superhydrophobic coatings. Uh, that part is really not new. Uh, what is difficult to achieve is uh, superhydrophobicity in a very durable coating, um, and that's we, we needed to achieve that because uh, the conditions in the depths of these deep offshore wells are really um, quite aggressive, and most um, conventional uh, or known uh, superhydrophobic uh, chemistries and coating processes are would just not give the durability that uh, was needed for this application. So that's really a, a, a clear and distinct difference between um, the, uh, the conventional wisdom, if you will, <laughs> and this particular uh, coating technology. And likely one of the reasons it was recognized for the R&D 100 award, which I want to touch mm -hmm. on now, um, we did mention in last month's podcast that the R&D 100 award, um, you know, it's a huge honor. We had two winners for 2019, and the Lotus Flow coating was one of them. Since 1963, R&D Magazine has presented this award annually, and SWRI has won 45 awards over the years. So what did it mean for you and your team to garner the this recognition and join this elite group? Well, it was really terrific. It's, it's really a testament to the team, and I, I can't emphasize that enough. Um, this was a multidisciplinary team. It's very much like uh, a puzzle. Every element of that puzzle has a unique shape, uh, which equates to people's unique skills. And every person involved in this team uh, played a very critical role 
in um, developing this technology and transitioning it to uh, full commercialization. So it's it's um, it's a it's an award for everyone, and it's um, uh, it's a recognition to everybody's effort um, that uh, contributed to this program. Fill us in a little bit on your journey. How did you get involved with coatings? Well. Um, so I think looking back, um, my area, one of my areas of specialty really is in surface science. And uh, this particular problem was uh, started off as really as a technical discussion uh, with uh, another colleague, uh, Greg Hatton and I, uh, where we were just uh, thinking theoretically, uh, what could we do to prevent the uh, um, these deposits from sticking to surfaces like this. Um, so I reached into my background, which is uh, both in surface science and in theoretical chemistry. Um, and uh, so that part, uh, uh, on at least on a theoretical level, <clears throat> uh, then uh, I would say uh, transition to uh, the more practical aspects of, okay, now we really have to deposit a coating. How do we do that? And so other people with that expertise, uh, Dr. Rong Hua Wei in particular, who's a specialist in um, coating technologies, uh, particularly hard coatings uh, and uh, processes, uh, became involved uh, early on in the program. <clears throat> uh, and we were also fortunate to have uh, Dr. Kent Coulter, who um, is really an expert in uh, large-scale manufacturing processes having to do with uh, uh, coatings. And so he was uh, really key in uh, scaling up the process and uh, uh, completing this uh, transition to full commercialization. As well as the the the, uh, the technical staff who uh, put in long hours and also shift work, <laughs> um, they uh, were instrumental in uh, being able to meet the uh, production quotas that we uh, um, that were forced on us in order to uh, be able to demonstrate the. Um, or verify the performance of this uh, coating technology in deep offshore wells. So what do you enjoy about this field? Well, I think the, the most um, enjoyable part of this whole project is to watch something uh, go from uh, literally um, simulations to um, benchtop laboratory work to pilot scale demonstration, and then to full scale production. That's a very rewarding process to, to observe, I think. From idea to reality, and it's making a difference. Exactly, yes. All right, well, Michael, this is another example of a technology that I think is rarely in the spotlight, but yet it's so useful in getting us the oil and gas products we use every day. So a great peek behind the scenes today. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you.
And as I mentioned, SWRI picked up two R&D 100 awards in 2019. To hear about the award-winning AF369 Direction Finding Antenna, check out last month's discussion, Episode 16, Superior Signals Intelligence. And now, breakthroughs, personal stories of discovery told by the people who live them. Today, an engineer uses trial and error, data, and a lot of intuition to develop a cleaner engine. Hi, my name is Brian Zavala, and I'm a research engineer here at Southwest Research Institute. So an after-treatment system is um, a system that's set up with different catalysts and also other injectors and other different devices in order to reduce the engine out emissions. And so you can kind of think about it as a kind of a, a system that sterilizes the, the exhaust coming out of the engine. So my story involves uh, uh, learning how to calibrate these systems. You know, we want to uh, we want to take into account the different operating strategies and regimes where these engines and after-treatment systems operate. And we also want to get the best performance out of these systems. And so we go through a calibration development phase where we define these parameters and where we sort of guide the behavior of the after-treatment system. Um, and so for me, um, doing it on these low NOx systems, being low NOx being... Uh, basically reducing uh, the uh, the tailpipe NOx emissions to near zero levels um, gave me uh, a lot of exposure to uh, to really look at these systems in a different way. And so we have this iterative process of running these cycles, looking at the data, and then also uh, going back to calibrating. And sometimes we have to do this on the fly or basically while the engine is operating. If we see something that's uh, that maybe a result that we don't want, or maybe if we see that there's an opportunity to make an improvement, um, and so, you know, with that, uh, again, going back to that intuition of being able to look at data for maybe 30 seconds, making the right parameter change because there's there's got to be at least 120 different parameters you can change, and then knowing that you got the result that you wanted. You know, that's that's that for me would be a breakthrough moment because that tells me that I understood the system and that uh, I had I made the correct assumptions about what was going on within the system. You know, it's the, the whole the goal of meeting this point zero two regulation was really what the what the achievement was and doing it on a system that was aged. So in other words, a system that is already at its full useful life, a system that you cannot you can no longer uh, uh, basically age or, or exposed to deterioration mechanisms too. So this is a system that has reached its full service, uh, full service life. And yeah, that's, those are the systems that are typically the most difficult to, to calibrate. That was a great feeling because this is, uh, it's not only defining for, I guess myself, but also for industry because we, we could do it. So the, the part of the, 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 the objective of the program is to, uh, to say that the technologies that we selected are feasible to meet 0 0.02. And so of course, if we don't meet, if we don't meet 0 0.02, then, you know, the, the, the project, you know, didn't meet its objective. And so this would be uh, kind of a pivoting moment because we can say that, look, here's the tech, here's a set of technologies and these are the ones we've selected. This is why we selected them and they worked. 
So that kind of gave guidance to the regulators to say, okay, great, we can move forward with making new regulation. Ultimately, the goal is to uh, clean the air, of course, for the environment, but also for human health, right? That's what the, that's, that's what, that's what the kind of uh, the, the, the primary objective is of this program. And that's why California contracted us to do it. Um, but yeah, for the end user in, in the next five to 10 years, uh, the trucks that are going down the road are probably generating cleaner, you know, the, the exhaust that's coming out is cleaner than what's actually going into the engines. A breakthrough for better air quality. Thanks for sharing your story, Brian. And now, Ask Us Anything You Ask, our experts answer. Today, a popular tech topic. Sammy M. asked, what is machine learning? Chris Menser is an SWRI engineer and assistant director in our intelligence systems division. He's here with an explanation. So, Chris, this is a term we should probably all become familiar with, machine learning. Yeah, basically, machine learning has become really popular. What it is is basically teaching a computer how to specifically do a task without explicitly telling it how to do that task. So typically for computer programs, you have a programmer and they know exactly what they want the computer to do. And so they type very specific logic that says, if you do this, then you do this and things like that. Um, But then that program isn't very flexible. So if it sees something it's never seen before, then it has a lot of trouble. And so that's where machine learning comes in. Instead, you have a programmer that creates a framework And that framework is then you just put a bunch of data through that and you tell it what you want the output to be based on the input. And that's how you teach the system, but you don't know exactly why it makes those decisions. And so this is a lot kind of based on how the human brain works. And so there's a lot of different methods that we can approach for this. But really it's, uh, you know, human brains, we see a lot of inputs with our eyes, ears, different senses. And all of a sudden, you know, somebody tells us that's a car or that's a person. And so similarly, that's how machine learning is going to work. We've tried to mimic the human brain with neural networks, but there's also a lot of other like more simple techniques. And so uh, it's really great for scenarios where it's really hard to describe something very specifically and you want something that's very general, like all people look different, but you still want to recognize that they're people. Some examples of how machine learning is used, uh, in particular, I work in the uh, automated vehicle area, and so we do a lot of uh, image processing. So we really want the vehicle to be able to respond like a human responds. And so if you see something, you need to know that it's a person. Uh, That's very critical to how you might drive. Similarly, you need to recognize that something is a car. And so those are all inputs that come in through a camera. Basically, they're just different colors and pixels. And how do you turn that into a concept? And so that's uh, what machine learning is used for in automated driving. But that can also be used in really large data sets. People can use it in a lot of different areas, you know, from your email, like trying to find junk email and things like that. And so it's a really got a wide application. Great explanation. Thank you, Chris, for being here today. To submit your question, use hashtag AskSWRI, comment on one of our Ask Us Anything posts, or visit podcast.swri.org and scroll to the bottom. Your question may be featured on an upcoming podcast episode. And that wraps up this episode of Technology Today. Subscribe to the Technology Today podcast to hear in-depth conversations with the people changing our world and beyond through science, engineering, research, and technology. Connect with Southwest Research Institute on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Check out the Technology Today magazine at technologytoday.swri.org. And now is a great time to become an SWRI problem solver. Visit our career page at swri.jobs. Ian McKinney and Brian Ortiz are the podcast audio engineers and editors. I am producer and host Lisa Pena. Thanks for listening.